Well, good morning. We're continuing our uh, series this morning on discipleship, and we're going to be looking as uh, Bernard's already read from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Uh, I'll see whether or not to read them in a moment, as we've already read them, and they're a very familiar passage to us, aren't they? But when I read those uh, verses as I was preparing, I thought, well, three years earlier, when uh, Jesus first called the disciples and they started to follow him, they probably had a very different expectation of the future. They'd expected a saviour, but one who would overthrow the oppressing Roman rules. One who'd set his people free militarily, politically, economically. They'd make Israel a great nation once again. They'd have had a, a different idea of what it meant to follow a great leader and where he'd be taking them. But now they were meeting Jesus on a mountainside, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, but somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem. So a lot had happened in those last three years. They changed, and so had their expectations and allegiances. They began to understand what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus in the kingdom of God, and what Jesus expected of them. We know from the early verses of Acts that Jesus was seen and met with his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. He appeared to Peter and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And later that same evening, he appeared to the disciples. And then eight days later, he appeared again and we had that whole Thomas Doubting, then believing episode. Soon afterwards, he was on the seashore when the disciples returned from fishing and he cooked breakfast and had breakfast with them. So he was around quite a bit with his disciples. And then these verses in Matthew 28 probably happened somewhere in the middle of those 40 days. See, that one works. Yes, it does. I'm not going to read them now because time's a little bit short. But as I said, we have just read those and we're very familiar with them. But... Mountains seem to be significant in the Gospels. Each time a mountain's mentioned, there's a revelation about Jesus. There's a sermon on the mount where Jesus unpacked and expanded the Ten Commandments given to Moses, which were also given on a mountain. And then there's the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, showing us that Jesus fulfills the law represented by Moses and the prophets represented by Elijah. And now Jesus meets with his disciples to commission them for further service. He was giving them their purpose, as it were, in ministry. So looking at our text, how many people met with Jesus on the mountain? Easy question, so easy you don't want to answer it. Eleven? Actually, I'm not quite so sure. I know it says eleven, but I'm not quite so sure. I've been reading around a few of the commentaries and as I've prepared, there's quite a strong thought that they weren't actually alone, that there may have been 500. Clearly, the 11 were present, otherwise it wouldn't say so, would it, in in our verse 16 there. But uh, in Corinthians, I've underlined it there, Paul gives us a very brief gospel summary. Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, he appeared to the twelve. And at one time, he met with 500 people. 
there's a lot of thought that said this might be the time. I'm not saying it is, but it might be. It gives a slightly different picture. Since his resurrection, Jesus had already met with the 11 a couple of times. And yet it says in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Or in some translations, it says they hesitated. Well, surely for the 11, the doubting or the hesitation would have been over by now. They'd even had breakfast with him. But perhaps there were others there that hadn't seen him since his resurrection. And then it says in the next verse, then Jesus came to them or drew near. And it suggests that he was a little way off when the first of the disciples recognised him. And that as he drew closer, then they recognised him more. His presence put them at ease and took away their doubts. And then there'd be no reason, would there, to restrict that great commission to just the 11. Surely he'd have wanted that great commission to go to as wide a group as possible for everyone. It applied to all his followers, then just as it applies to us today. We as a church and as individuals have got that same responsibility today. So Jesus drew near to that group. Whether it's 11, whether it's 500, well, we don't know, but he drew near to the group. And although we call this the Great Commission, it's actually sandwiched between a great affirmation and a great promise. Because he starts by reminding them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All authority, everywhere. Nowhere that doesn't come under his authority. Now that's either a staggering claim or a shattering truth. Jesus had been crucified earlier as a state criminal. The Roman authorities had hung him on a cross and yet he claims to be the one to whom Caesar will bow the knee. He's the Lord not just of the church, he's the Lord of history, the Lord of governments, the Lord of nations, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of all. We can't change that. But we do have the choice as to whether to make him the Lord of our lives as well. And so that great commission flows out from the great affirmation. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, which is the core of our text today. We often think of a great commission as a call to mission, something our mission partners will have heard and responded to, and something that we would have affirmed in them by sending them out or commissioning them, supporting them financially and in prayer. Of course, it includes full-time mission, but it's so much more. I'm actually told that if you go back to the original Greek, the emphasis is much more on making disciples than on going. And it may be, it could be better translated as therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. There's a sense in which it should be natural, a natural thing to do. And as you're going about your life, whether it's shopping, working, caring, relaxing, studying, whatever it is we're doing, we should be looking to make disciples. As we're going out about our business, make disciples at work, at shopping or holiday, wherever we are, make disciples. In other words, Jesus doesn't put the emphasis on telling us to go, but he puts the emphasis on making disciples, and it should be part of our lifestyle. 
shouldn't be a special effort, something we put, aside, put time aside to do, but rather something that's quite normal. Of course, to make a disciple, you have to be a disciple. Otherwise, you can't teach, nurture, or be an example. Recently, Esme, that's our four-year-old granddaughter, was trying to write a story, and she wanted help to spell some words. Cat, back, house. You know, not, not too difficult for adults, but she wanted to learn. And she's eager to please her teacher as well as mum, dad and the wider family, although at that age, teacher tends to come first. Isaac's similar, but at a different level. And he wants to copy his older sister because he's learning from her. It's part of growing up. But what about us? Do we want to grow up and develop and to please the Lord whom we follow? And are we ready to help others to grow and develop? Coming back to our text. Go. Or whilst you are going, and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'll come back to the bit about baptising in a moment. They'd been with Jesus for up to three years. They were apprenticed to Jesus. He'd been their teacher and their guide, and now he was telling them to instruct others on how to be a true disciple, and not just a follower or a believer. They were to make disciples such that they live their lives as a witness for Jesus, standing out in their communities, effectively spreading the kingdom and establishing a people to be the people that God originally intended. How far have we been apprenticed? And are we ready to apprentice others? What's happening this morning outside of this room, but in other rooms around? We're teaching. And that happens during the week as well. But it's not only in that environment that we should be making disciples. Now, I've got to be careful not to mix politics with church, but just as an example, limited though it is, when there's an election, every party publishes their manifesto, basically saying, if you vote for us, then this is the kind of society that we're work to realise. Whether they deliver or not, well, I'll leave you to decide on that. But early in his ministry, Jesus gave a description of how he wanted to build his kingdom on earth. A type of kingdom that it should be, how people in the kingdom should live and how they should interact with society. We know it as a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in our text, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So what is it that Jesus has commanded them? I think the Sermon on the Mount's a good place to start. And of course we can find that in Matthew 5. Jesus spells out the characteristics of those who belong to his kingdom, the hallmarks of the people of God on earth. It's what we should be like. It's how we should be living. It's what younger Christians should be able to see in the lives of older Christians. We should be an example, and they should be attracted to learn more and grow. I'd like to say they should be able to look up to us, but I don't mean that in the way that's often said. I know we're far from perfect, but they should be able to see enough in us that it helps them to grow as we point towards Jesus. So very briefly, looking at those characteristics, Jesus says, firstly, they're poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When you look at, how much, look at much of Jesus' ministry, 
he ministered to people who were considered outcasts, rejected by the religious people, the moral people. It was to people like the tax collectors or corrupt businessmen, Samaritans who were considered inferior, to prostitutes, to the weak, and those on the edge of society. Those are the people with whom Jesus chose to have meals. He stood with them. They're the ones to whom, firstly, the coming of the kingdom of God is good news. Not to the powerful, not to the rich or the strong, not to the religious, unless they too realise their bankruptcy in spiritual things. To be poor in spirit, to have an attitude of brokenness, of need, and to recognise that we can't go it alone. Jesus says it's to to such people that the kingdom of God belongs. And then he says, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do we mourn over the state of the world and long for a better world? Do we mourn over our own sin and moral failures? Do we mourn for a world that's so desperately out of touch with God? A world that's broken and disfigured, separated from Creator? And as part of that mourning, do we long for renewal and the healing of the world in which we live? We mourn because we want to see better. We want to see God's kingdom come. We're sad on the one hand, but on the other hand, we have joy because we know the heart and love of God for restoration, healing and relationship. And then disciples are meek, and he says they will inherit the earth. Well, often we think of meekness as being timid or cowardly, which isn't very attractive but Jesus described himself as being meek. And the last thing he said of Jesus was that he was cowardly and timid. Perhaps it means that meek people are those who don't overassert themselves in the sense that they're not interested in being number one. They're quite happy to stay in the shadows, to put others first and point to Jesus. And then he said his disciples are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or in some translations, justice. Our translation says righteousness, but I think it's probably pointing more towards social justice as you read around it. It would seem that Jesus is saying that a true disciple should be passionate about justice in society, about a rightness in society, in our world. And he says later we may face persecution because of it. But people who hunger and thirst for justice can also be quite harsh people at times, even aggressive and perhaps a bit self-righteous. So maybe that's why he then goes on to talk about mercy. They're characterised by being merciful because they seek not only rightful judgement of the oppressor, but the reconciliation of the oppressor with the oppressed. They look beyond vengeance to transformation in the lives of those who are the oppressors. And they're willing to forgive and to offer people a new beginning, just as they receive mercy themselves. There's a booklet that some of us are using about living like a North Korean. Uh, We're using it during Lent. It gives some indication of what it might be to live in North Korea as a Christian. But the background reading there says that North Koreans are not praying for the downfall of the harsh, persecuting regime of King Jong-un, but praying that he come to faith. 
And then disciples are, are pure in heart. Well, there's an element of, of personal purity in that, but we'll never be fully pure in heart until the kingdom of God fully comes. Our hearts, however, should be fixed in one direction. No, no divided loyalties. Allegiance is to be to God and his kingdom before everything else. We're not to be tossed this way and that way, not distracted or deflected in our calling. Everything we do from Monday to Sunday will be against the backdrop of the coming of the kingdom of God. No split loyalties, no divided minds, no compartmenting, if that's the right word, of faith and work or faith and study or faith and living. We should have one allegiance and be of one heart. And finally, from from this passage, Jesus says we should be peacemakers. Not peace lovers, which we all tend to be, but peacemakers. As disciples, we should be able to to go into situations of conflict, whether that's in our families, our neighbourhoods, at work, or even on the world stage. We should be building bridges, enabling people to listen to each other and to talk. He says that, he, that we will be called children of God. Because since the day that Adam rebelled against God, God has been in the business of making peace between himself and his creation. So whenever we're agents of peace, of reconciliation, we're imitating God, we're showing the family likeness. There's quite a challenge in the Beatitudes about how we should be living as disciples. And in the Great Commission, we're told to go and teach others to be disciples. We're told to make them our apprentice, to draw alongside. I hope that as part of that teaching, we can say, do as I do, not just do as I say. But there's more, because Jesus goes on to use two metaphors. He talks about salt and light. He wanted to show what type of impact a disciple would have on their society when they truly show the character that we've just looked at, what difference they make as disciples in the world into which he's sending them. He says, you are salt. And as you probably know, salt in many poorer countries or societies has been used as a disinfectant or an antiseptic. You rub it into meat to prevent the meat from going bad. He says, disciples who live according to that way, then they'll be described like salt. Salt stops the decay of meat, and so we should help to stop the moral and spiritual decay of our society. But then on the positive side, he also says, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they can see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Those works of justice... Those works of showing mercy, those works of peacemaking and reconciliation should cause men and women to be attracted to find out more about what it means to be a Christian and how they can have a relationship with the living God who loves them. So people shouldn't just hear our preaching or our talking about Jesus. They should be able to see our good works. But he doesn't finish there. Jesus goes on to say more about how, this, how the distinctive community of God should be. I can't read all the text, 
but you'll find it in Matthew chapter 6 to 8. He talks about loving our enemies, not just our personal enemies. We're called to cross barriers in engaging and loving people who are different to us, not just associating with those who we like. He talks about sharing our possessions with the poor and the underprivileged, seeking for others what we seek for ourselves. And he says if you only like your friends and only do good things for your friends, well, that's no different to a non-believer. Everyone does that. We need to show the difference by seeking the best for those who oppose us, even curses. That's the distinctiveness of a disciple community. And then if your brother sins, don't gossip, don't talk about it with others, go and talk with him or her face to face. If they repent, be quick to forgive. If not, then bring it to the church. And there's a lot more in the Gospels about being a disciple. And then you can carry on in Acts and into Paul's letters to the early churches and to individuals. There's lifelong learning in being a disciple. But we don't have to wait until we know everything to be able to play our part in making disciples. It's clear in a lot of Paul's letters in the early church that they made a lot of mistakes. Paul even seemed to get frustrated with them at times but God graciously still grew his church. He used their young faith and even their mistakes and he continued to make his disciple people. He made them to disciple more people and to add to his kingdom. God wasn't going to be thwarted and he won't be. Even if we don't take part, he will find others that will, but we miss out on the blessing. And Jesus also said that as part of making disciples, we should baptise. We should baptise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because as a Baptist church, I think we're quite familiar with baptism. And we have another baptismal service on Easter Sunday. But Jesus clearly links being a disciple with baptism. We can be a believer without being baptised. But as we grow and as we're discipled, It should be a natural thing to want to be baptised, a natural step in our relationship with God and his church, to be baptised into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, that often meant that you committed yourself if you were baptised in the name of somebody. And that's what we're doing, we're committing ourselves to God. And it's not an individual event, it's a corporate event. We're baptised into the community of those who profess the name of Jesus and accept the Trinity of God. And it's in community that we learn what discipleship means. We can't easily learn to be a disciple on our own because most of what we just looked at needs a relationship. We need to be apprenticed. Jesus didn't just give the Sermon on the Mount and finish by saying, go on then, get on with it, see you later. He walked with them for three years, continuing to teach them and show them and encourage them along the way. You probably watched The Apprentice with Alan Sugar where people compete to, get to, to become Alan's apprentice. Why do they do that? Well, yeah, they want to make money, of course. I know, I understand that. But they also want a mentor that will guide them, teach them uh, and help them, walk with them, hopefully standing with them when they make mistakes and putting them back on the right path. Unfortunately, most of the hopefuls hear those words, you're fired, and only one is hired, but praise God, we don't hear those words. He's established his church, 
to be a part of his discipling people. At the end of his ministry on earth, Jesus didn't give the Great Commission as something to pass the time until he returns. And he didn't say goodbye, good luck, see you soon, hope you get on well. I said at the beginning of the passage that it starts with the great affirmation before the great commission and it finishes with the great promise. And surely I am with you until the very end of the age. Remember that Jesus was talking with people who initially hesitated or doubted and yet he still told them to go and make disciples. Well, it's not unusual to be hesitant or to have doubts at times. When I look back in the Old Testament, some of the characters that God graciously used, there was Moses who said that he had faltering lips, so God gave him Aaron to speak for him. There's Gideon, described as a great man of God, yet found threshing grain in a winepress as he was hiding from the Midianites, and he put a fleece out twice just to be sure. Samuel, who was unsure about hearing God's voice, Elijah, who went on the run and hid in a cave, and Isaiah, who didn't think he was good enough. But all of them God still used. Jesus promises his empowering spirit, his presence with us when we step out. We're not to go it alone in making disciples. His spirit is with us. And the end of Matthew's gospel sort of runs into the beginning of the first chapter of Acts, where Jesus says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Jesus then went to be with God. The Holy Spirit came as promised. And it was after that the Great Commission began to be fulfilled. And it's down to us to continue. They were empowered, and so can we be. So don't let the Great Commission become a great omission. Whatever our doubts, whatever our hesitancy, let's be reminded of who God is and his desire that we should know his heart more deeply, that we should share his heart more widely and that we should draw on his immeasurably great power that he has promised us. The last words of Jesus recorded by Matthew are all authority has been given to me Therefore, make disciples of all people, baptising them, teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. And I am with you always. Amen.